Good morning. Before I have you stand so we can read a little bit of our text this morning, we have our citizen stewardship tables out there. We will have them out there for the next few weeks. On those tables, it's just things to help you understanding what's going on, the issues that we're facing. Uh, there are these initiatives, I think there's 11 of them, something like that, uh, that are there so you can read them. If you want to sign them, it's, it's not saying anything more than they're there for you to read. So I want to encourage you, myself, all of us, we have a huge responsibility to be light and salt. And that means in every place of our country's uh, life, God has given to us this salt to penetrate and light to illuminate. So hopefully you're taking these things. I think that most of us are understanding what's happened or what's happening. And we realize we need the Lord to come into our nation again like never before. So we're praying for that, and this is a practical way to be exercising that responsibility. So if you would stand, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to finish up uh, this half of the chapter, starting in verse 26. So I'm just going to read 26 through 31. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into this. We're going to take communion following this uh, message. So Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. We are so thankful that these things that we are given are you speaking to us. Give us ears to hear, I pray. The things I've prepared, break them fresh, feed us, Lord. We are hungry. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You've given to us your word so abundantly that we can sometimes lose track of how important it is. So, Lord, this morning, by your Holy Spirit, grant to us growth. Bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a quote I came across in reading through this uh, theology book where Norm Geisler writes this. There is a biblical progress of revelation. As time passed, God, the creator of time, revealed more and more about his plan of redemption. Indeed, that progressive revelation brings progressive responsibility to believe seems to be the overall emphasis of the book of Hebrews. After showing the Jewish believers that Christ was better than the angels, Moses, Joshua, and the Old Testament priests, the author strongly exhorted them to believe this or they would receive the judgment of God, God has willed such belief to be normatively necessary, unquote. So in the book of Hebrews, we have these, again, the, the going from chapter 1 through the whole book. In the book of Hebrews, God has spoken eight things concerning his son. He has spoken seven things concerning his salvation. And he has spoken five things concerning our salvation, and those are wrapped up in five warnings as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. So I have a, uh, uh, it's in my bag actually, it's not there yet, but it will be. Um, this uh, overview or outline of the book of Hebrews, the five warnings and where they are in the book, and we're on number 
chapters 8 through 10, finishing up chapter 10, this fourth warning, which is 14 verses, about the title, Do Not Draw Back. So last week, in our last, not last week, two weeks ago, our last study, we looked at the first half of the book of Hebrews. In that, again, the emphasis through this whole book is put your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is our one sacrifice for sins forever. Jesus is the one offering who perfects forever, and Jesus is our full assurance of faith. So as we're running, making a running start into this second half of chapter 10, we have three times having and three times let us. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, I hope you have your Bibles and you can go along with me. Verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, second, and having a high priest over the house of God. He's been talking about that leading up to this. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the second let us, verse 23, let us hold fast, we've talked about this often, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I say amen. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, and so, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So now we're coming into this fourth warning, verse 26, for if we sin willfully. So now we're getting into this parenthetical warning. We, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. So it's pretty, this is, it, it, these warnings are there for a reason, because these things are possible, otherwise the warning is, means nothing. So then the end of the warning in chapter 1038, now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And we're going to go into chapter 11, which is all about by faith, believing. So do not draw back. There was a man named Charles Templeton who wrote a book, Farewell to God, in which he denounces any belief in God, categor categorically denouncing the Bible as full of myths and error. He denounced as foolish anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, so what? It's another book among many. But the thing about this man, the tragedy is that Charles Templeton was once a close associate of Billy Graham. He was co-founder of Youth for Christ International. He was once a tremendously used evangelist who led thousands to Christ, preaching the word of God in meetings across Canada. He was the Canadian Billy Graham. He was a brilliant and gifted man. And as I read about him from his son, he was, he was a very brilliant and gifted man. But something happened in this man's heart. He turned his back on Jesus. It was, it was and remains a shock to those who knew him and worked alongside of him. His son wrote, he went to seminary, it was Princeton Theological Seminary, he went to seminary to learn more and came back an agnostic, unquote. So many prayers were offered for this man to return to Jesus. It does not appear that he ever did. He died in 2001. 
Now, the Bible is replete with warnings against departing from the Lord. And he puts it here as willfully sin. So departing from the Lord in willful sin. From the perfect beginning that God gave to Adam and Eve, they had that problem. Adam was not deceived, willfully sinned. Scripture tells that Lucifer, Satan, that serpent of old, that great dragon, who used to be the, the, the light, Lucifer, rebelled against God. And in so doing, took a third of the angelic host with him in rebellion against God. We read in Jude, chapter, Jude verse 6, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. From their birth, God warned the children of Israel of the dangers of departing from him in willful sin. Throughout their history, forsaking the Lord was a repeated willful sin of God's chosen people. Time and again, they embraced the idolatrous practices of the nations around them, but never for lack of warning from God. Continuously, the word went out through the prophets. His covenant with them was filled with warnings against departing from him in willful sin. Same for us. In Exodus, Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Over and over again in the, in the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 6, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. take heed to yourselves, notice, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, God commanded Moses to gather the children of Israel and have six of the tribes stand on Mount Gerizim and the other six on Mount Ebal. There, as the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, proclaim with a loud voice the words of the covenant, the blessings of obedience to it and the curses of departing from it, there would be this amen from Mount Gerizim on the blessings of obedience. And there would be an amen from, the Mount, from Mount Ebal on the, acknowledging the consequences, the curses of departing from God. Here's the deal. God is a jealous God. And in his jealousy for them, he knew, as he does for us, the need to instill in our hearts the lurking dangers that can cause us to depart from him in willful sin. It's a real warning that we're reading about this morning. Before Joshua led the people in the promised land, he re-upped, he re-pledged the nation to fullness, to faithfulness and obedience to God. And they all said amen. The history of Israel is that their kings and their judges, their prophets, would lead the people into forsaking their God. Serve other gods. Tragically, but just as the long-suffering of God does, he warned them and warned them and warned them. And in the end, it led to defeat, captivity, and bondage. 
In the New Testament, we read in John 6, 6, 6, 666, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 1 Timothy, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Herminius and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul took strict measures to try and see these hearts turn back to God. Paul's telling Timothy, you wage that battle. Do you know that apostasy in the Greek, the classical Greek language, signified a revolt from a military commander? Insubordination, apostasy. In 2 Peter, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. I know this is heavy. <laughs> the question, one, what causes a Christian to depart from the Lord in willful sinfulness. The second warning, the longest of all of them, 26 verses, captures the problem simply hardness of heart. It's hardness of heart. In fact, Jesus said as far as adultery or, or um, divorce, it's hardness of heart. The, the essence of what leads us is hardness of heart to hearing and obeying God. So in that second warning, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He says, don't go astray in your hearts. He says, don't have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He says, don't be hardened through, here it is, the deceitfulness of sin. So not only is it hardness of heart in beginning sin, but then sin takes us further and further and further down the road of departing from God. So he says again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hardness of heart. We all know what that is. Maybe we don't want to necessarily, we're not kind, but when we say in our hearts, subtly or blatantly, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to do that. Willful sin. It leads to drawing back and departing from the living God. Unbelief disobedience, rebellion. Today, if we hear his voice, how do we hear the voice of God? It's very simple. The word of God. It's the word of God. On this past Wednesday, we're in Acts chapter 19. We're talking about that seventh time where it says they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and how we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We need to learn the voice of God in our hearts and minds. How do we walk this thing out? We need to hear from God. Would you say amen? We need to hear from the Lord. How do we hear the voice? The word of God. It's not complicated that we keep ourselves in the word of God. We're listening and God is speaking. Every time you open your Bible, every time you listen to the word of God, you are hearing the voice of God into your heart, into my heart. I'm so thankful for that simple, that simple truth that was, that was ingrained in me from my earliest days after I returned from the Lord, the word of God. 
Today they hear his voice. How? Not just the word of God, but through prayer. And he's hit, he's hit this in Hebrews. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer. The word of God, prayer. How do we hear? Prayer. We come to Jesus. We come with our requests. And the third way, how do you hear the voice? It's fellowship. The word of God, prayer, and fellowship. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, leading into this warning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching, exhorting one another. I came across this interesting quote by Keith Miller and Bruce Larson. Quote, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers, unquote. It's innate. We need the fellowship of believers. So these same three things are what the wrap-up was of the early church's priorities. Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers. They understood these priorities to keep them on track and to keep them in uni unified in the early church. So that's what they continued steadfastly. So with this study this morning, we stand at the threshold of the hall of faith. I can't wait. And yet what's been being laid, these first 10 chapters, are the truths upon which that faith operates. He's laying the foundation. What is that? It's Jesus. So in fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us do it. Let us believe God. Let us put into our hearts continuously his word, prayer, fellowship, and allowing Jesus to rise as he wants to, as leading us to victory through our faith in him. We are not of those who draw back to perdition. So what causes a Christian? It's a hard heart. But what keeps a Christian from drawing back to perdition by believing to the saving of the soul? I'll offer you three things in outline in the final half of this chapter. Number one, receive the knowledge of the truth. It won't happen without that. Secondly, recall the former days. And third, do not cast away your confidence. Receive the knowledge of the truth. For if we sin willfully, what happens, says, after we have received. So the question is, what happens after we have received the knowledge of the truth? What are we doing with that? What's going to happen with that? Now note these two verses before. Let us consider one another. Let us not forsake the assembly. So it seems to me the danger in forsaking the fellowship of believers is that we're, it's easier to sin. We get away from the life of the body of Christ and we begin to, in a sense, die a little bit. If after we receive the knowledge of the truth, we then reject that knowledge... I am still responsible for that knowledge that I've received from the Lord as a believer. I can no longer be neutral or claim ignorance as to my sin. 
Jesus remains the only forgiveness that God offers through him. Thanks be to God that has not and will never, ever change. It is finished. So let it be written, so let it be believed. There remains no other sacrifice for sins. Thank the Lord that our faith is in a finished, completed work by which we draw near to God. Jesus has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But something in my heart can change, and maybe has changed this morning. Was it yesterday? Was it today? It need not be forever. Jesus is not hiding from you, but in your heart, you've gone into hiding from him. Jesus is the same, but something can so easily change in one moment of temptation, in one bad decision. And I would say to you this morning, come back to Jesus. We're going to take communion. Come back to him in your heart. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's interesting. It does not say there was no mercy, but that they died without mercy because he has rejected Moses' law, willful sin, sinning against knowledge. Now, note, this capital punishment, this putting to death, was only after very careful and thorough examination and determination of the charges. And then, listen, the accuser or accusers would be the first to carry out the capital punishment. So this is serious stuff. And if we're going to be charging, then we need to be understand what this means to them, if it is true. We hold their life, in a sense. And this would be, in a sense, a human court on earth. So there are many, in Numbers chapter 15, there was a man gathering sticks, willfully disobedient to God's command, and he was put to death. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is, in, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, let us go serve other gods. If that's happening, if there's a subtlety, it needs to be exposed. And if there's not repentance, there's death. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we get part of what was quoted in our text this morning. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire. Now, here it is. Inquire diligently. And if indeed it is true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone them to death, that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death, notice, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witness shall be the first to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. So without mercy, God is merciful. He is always looking for a way to be merciful. 
God's mercy is always predicated on the attitude of the heart towards him. So in James, he picks this up, chapter 4. Adulterer and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, here it is, he's a jealous God. The spirit who dwells in him yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He continues, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, not draw away, but draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Are you not thankful for that? There's dark stuff, there's things, but hey, come to God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. And our heart attitude and humility coming in need of forgiveness, in need of his mercy, God abundantly, the new covenant, the new testament. So God, by himself, provides for the necessities, the way by which he can be merciful. In the Old Testament, the law had the mercy seat that was on top of the ark. The blood was sprinkled there. That was God's provision for forgiveness. In fact, Hebrews tells us, for the covering of sins until Jesus came as a covering. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, God provided his son, Jesus. In fact, 1 John says, My little children, these things I write to you so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and he is the mercy seat for our sins. He is the propitiation. He's it. Don't you love getting your eyes back on Jesus? He is our mercy seat. Verse 29, Hebrews chapter 10. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, I look at this, and I think, this, just like in chapter 6, this seems to me to me extreme, something that can happen, but it's extreme. So someone who is a believer now is trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. You see, It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. You have the human court and the law, and then you have heaven court, Jesus Christ, and his grace and mercy provided for us through the cross. So he is now seated, as we've been learning, as a great high priest to all who will come to him, all of them. If Jesus' death 2,000 plus years ago was not adequate, then nothing is adequate, and we are of all men most to be pitied. But now is Christ risen. Now is Jesus reigning and sitting. Of how much worse punishment? There's a threefold indictment here. Number one, trample the Son of God underfoot. Contempt for the person of Jesus Christ. I say, for someone who believed, and this is happening, it seems rare. In my walk with the Lord, I've seen, I don't know if I've ever seen this. The, the closest I get example is Charles Templeton, if that's what happened. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. In other words, he counts the cost of the cross as worth absolutely nothing. Wow. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, 
wrote this, quote, to, to renounce its efficacy or its value, cross, is to commit a sin so heinous as to dwarf the fatal infractions of the old covenant from the, from the lesser to the greater. Insulted the spirit of grace, he who himself wooed us to the love of God, the spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment and drawing us and wooing us to Jesus. Insulted the spirit of grace. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We know him. To know God is to understand he is a merciful God, but he's also a God of judgment. That's the truth. God will take vengeance. He will repay, and he will judge his people. Because we know him, we reverence him. Because we know him, we hold him in awe. Because we know him, we hold him in the highest and greatest respect. We're talking about God, Almighty. The quote phrase, this, this quoted phrase in the Old Testament twice, the Lord will judge his people, is that, listen, this is very interesting. I think it's important. It's that of God vindicating his servants who have stayed faithful or returned in faith to him. We'll read them in a minute. He will judge for them, but only when they relinquish all their trust in other gods or their own efforts. In other words, repentance. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's no one remaining bond or free. In other words, they've repented. Psalm 135, for the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants, same phrase. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. So it talks about turning to the true and living God. So three things under this first point. God will vindicate those who are humbled before him. God will take vengeance on those who, that are hardened to him. And God will chasten his children to be partakers of his holiness. Fantastic. We'll get that, we get to Hebrews chapter 12. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But may we fall into the hands of him who loves us and chastens us according to knowledge, knowing us. He chastens us and it's painful and all those things. But God loves us. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you, who the Lord loves, he chastens. We should fear God more than we fear any other thing, any other person, or any other circumstance. Recall, secondly, recall the former days in which after, verse 32, you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle, struggle with sufferings. Recall, number one, the love you had for Jesus. Recall the life you had as a follower of Jesus and recall the longing you had to be with Jesus. I say amen. Recall the, we need to remember, in fact, we're going to take communion. The whole thing is remembrance of him. Do you remember those times, the former days? 
when you had such a love for Jesus. The Ephesian church was known for its love. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus said, you've fallen. Something happened. Recall the life you had as a follower of Jesus Christ. And recall the longing you had to be with Jesus. So you were illuminated. I was blind, but now I see. Because I believed in Jesus. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. Whatever it takes, I'm not turning back. I hope and trust that that's still vibrant, these things in our hearts. But if not, what's the solution? Come back to Christ. Jesus called the church in Revelation, repent and do the first works again. Come back to how it first started. Recall the former days. That word struggle is an interesting word in the Greek. It means contest. So it's the Christian, the Christian life is like a contest. It's like, as we've read, a race. It's a battle. Recall when you first came to Jesus. There was a certain wonderful naivety as to what the Christian life is going to mean. But oh, that flame that started it was just believing Jesus, ready to stand for and against anything, not turning back. My own life, my own story. I received Christ when I was 10, walked away from him for several years, came back to Christ in Costa Mesa, California, Calvary Chapel. My friends back in New York, which is why I left New York, my friends back, oh, Kevin, he's always 150, you know, he's, he's just overboard in everything he does. Yeah, it'll last a while, but then he'll be over it. I ain't over it yet. <laughs> and I don't plan to get over it. Jesus is just, his, his desire for my life is to see him victory, bringing me victory and changes and never turning back. He's desiring that for you as well. Now, here's what I wrote in my notes. Is it not a very simple faith in Jesus that somehow changes? We complicate faith. We overthink faith. We add much stuff to our faith. But oh, to come back to simply loving Jesus. Love being a follower of Jesus. Love sharing Jesus with others. Oh, to come back to that. It's like it clears everything right up. Jesus had come to me, all you who labor in heaven, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Say, come to me. This morning we're going to take communion. Maybe that's a need you have this morning. Just come back to Jesus in simple faith, in simple believing, loving him. First Timothy, Paul said, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you're also called, and confess the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Come back to that. Fight for it. Again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I am already poured, being poured as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of right, which the Lord will give to me on that day, not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. I don't know how that works, but I'm, I want to be showing up with such having lived such a life. 
In Hebrews 12, we'll get to this after 11. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he talks about the cross. Recall the former days. And he says, verse 33, partly while we were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while I became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves where? In heaven. In other words, recall the love you had for Jesus. Recall the life you had as a follower of Jesus. You were, you were made a spectacle, but it didn't matter. Remember those days? It didn't matter. You became companions. Say, we're in it together. We're in it together. You had compassion. We'll get through this thing together. That's the life of the believer. Recall the longing you had just to be with Jesus. You have something that's coming up. It's called heaven. And then finally, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You will be rewarded. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Cast away, that means to reckless rejection of your confidence. There's no reason to not be confident by faith in Jesus Christ. Endure in doing the will of God. You will be rewarded. Be patient in waiting. Jesus will return. We go, we groan, earnestly desiring to be delivered. There's this groaning that's taking place. That's a good thing. And here it is. Be patient in waiting. James picks this up. He says, therefore, be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord. See how the former waits, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. God's weather vein, if you will. God's weather, whether this is going to happen or not. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I loved Jeremy Pryor last week. I was so ministered to by him. He said, here, there's this kingdom thing. It's coming, but it's already here. It's ours. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Believe God no matter what. You will rejoice. Believe God no matter what is going on. The just shall live by faith is quoting Habakkuk 2.4. That's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's a key verse. We're going into chapter 11 of Hebrews. It's a key verse that's given now as we go into this door hall of faith in, in telling us about this whole idea. How do we now live? The just shall live by faith. Romans gives us the understanding of the just. We are justified by faith. Galatians gives us the understanding of shall live, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live, well, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. My faith is in Christ. So Galatians, the book of Galatians, is talking about how shall we live? And then we get to this glorious chapter 11 now in Hebrews, which is talking about by faith. 18 times in the book of Hebrews, one chapter, by faith, by faith, 
by faith. One time outside of those chapters, the total of the New Testament by faith 40 times. So half of them are wrapped up in, in Hebrews chapter 11 by faith. Now, the background of this passage in Habakkuk, he is complaining because of his inability to understand how God could possibly judge the nation Israel with a nation more wicked than they. And that's a good question. Basically, what God tells Habakkuk and us this morning is that though we don't understand the ways of God, we don't understand why he allows things, we can still trust him in whatever he does, in whatever he allows. The just shall live by faith. Do you trust him this morning? No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the circumstances, do you trust him? Will you continue to trust him? That's the question. The just shall live by faith. So to perdition means to waste. So draw back means to take in the sails. Get the picture? To lower the sails is to draw back in Greek. And then perdition means to waste. So I say this morning as we go into communion, raise the sails of your faith in Jesus. Allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to take charge in the direction your life is going. Let Jesus fill your life with his life by faith. Don't waste your faith in disobedience, unbelief, and rebellion. Don't waste your faith. Keep it. Don't expect to understand God's ways and what he allows in your life. Raise the sails. Take me the direction you want to go, Lord. Minister to me of your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So Habakkuk ends the book with this. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make me my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. Wow, what a way to end the Old Testament. The book of Habakkuk, rather. Now, to this and the things I've shared, I give my hearty amen. And yet, there is this warning. And so there is this reality that this can happen in a Christian's life. If it can't, then the warning is pointless. So I want to close. I had you come out. Just keep going. I want to close by reading this very, what I call a mysterious testimony. And it's concerning Charles Templeton. You see, he published that book four years before he died. So he was much along. He had years and years of this, of what he then wrote four years before he died. Before his death in 2001, he was 86 years old, Lee Strobel had an opportunity to interview Mr. Templeton when he had just two more years to live. He was suffering from Alzheimer's, but still a very clear conversation partner. In a case for faith, Strobel recounts the ending of their wide-ranging conversation. 
He said to him, and how do you assess Jesus? And he wrote, I, I wasn't, wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old friend, old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke at an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What, what could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? Lee Strobel writes, I was taken back and said, you sound like the, you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think, people don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. This is, this is Templeton. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, uh, but, but no, he said slowly. He's the most. He stopped and then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, He said, I miss him, Templeton. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head, looked downward, raised his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. <laughs> Templeton fought, Lee Strobel writes, to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that, unquote. There's a mystery in these things that we're talking about this morning. And here, I read this for years and years, and his whole life, the Holy Spirit was with him in all of his rebellion, all of his rejection. I just think, wow, what a mysterious thing we're talking about. That's why the answer that we seek is personal, intimate, and one that God wants to be for us. So as we take communion, take the emblem, just hold them. I would ask you just to close yourself in with Jesus, just you and him. And let him just take you in his arms this morning and remind you again 
of how much he loves you, all that he's provided for you. And then whatever's going on in your life, you can trust him. You can trust him. He will be faithful. So let's do that. As we pass those out, let's worship and receive these.